Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us tonight. If you would, open your Bibles to Luke, the 12th chapter. Luke, the 12th chapter. It's great to have our newly marrieds and young marrieds class back with us uh, tonight. They've had a wonderful retreat, I'm told. We appreciate the burkas and their support that they give to that age group uh, year-round. And, and this time, the Whitakers went, and they taught them uh, over the weekend also. And what a blessing it is to have elders that are involved in their lives and also a uh, blessing just to have such a wonderful, wonderful group. We always hear such good things of, of those classes. Uh, many of our young people tonight are in a winter series at Lebanon Road and also others of our congregation have taken a little road trip to Franklin, Kentucky. Some of the ones that went to El Salvador are going there as they're giving a report of uh, the week because several of their individuals came down and were part of our team. And so they're enjoying the fellowship and being with them and supporting them as they give a report about the work there. Also, at the end of this week, we will have around 20 of our own members that will go south to help with the Katrina relief in the Mississippi area. We're thankful for those of you that are doing that. And keep in mind, all of us, uh, we need to be praying about it. Also, uh, there's opportunities to give financially this, and there's also opportunities for us to even go later on this month and help. And so if you'd like to learn more about that, the opportunity is most definitely there. It's wonderful to be in a congregation where God gives us so many opportunities. And let's just make sure that we're wise with those, that we're faithful with those, and that we give God all the glory. It's not because of us, it's because of Him, and we're thankful that He gives us that opportunity. Well, yesterday was April Fool's Day, and maybe some of you were able to pull that joke off on somebody. Maybe you had the joke pulled on you. You know, April Fool's uh, jokes have been ranked. And uh, one of the ones that I like so much was the cubicle that you see there. You can imagine that individual that went into work and found their cubicle full, filled with styrofoam packaging. But the one that's ranked fourth out of all times is... In 1996, Taco Bell bought a full-page ad in the New York Times, and they announced that to help reduce the federal deficit, they had purchased the Liberty Bell, and from today forward, it would be called the Taco Liberty Bell. As you can imagine, since there was nothing on this full-page ad that led it to believe that it was a joke, it stirred the anger of so many Americans. The federal government was getting calls in the different branches. Taco Bell was getting calls saying, you've got to sell it back. You can't do this. And finally at noon, they came out with a press release that says, you've been fooled. April fools, we didn't buy it. It did help spike their sales, as I'm sure that's the reason they were willing to put such money out to buy the ad their sales spiked a half a million dollars that particular week. Mike McCurry, of, of the spokesman for the White House, he couldn't help but join in the fun because he saw that it stirred quite a ruckus. And so he later that same day came out and announced that the Lincoln Memorial had been for sale and Ford Motor Company bought it and now it was going to be called the Ford Lincoln Mercury Memorial. <laughs> Probably because of that, two years later... Burger King decided they would jump on the same bandwagon. This time, they bought a full-page ad in the USA Today. They said for the 32 million Americans that are left-handed, they're designing for the first time ever a left-handed burger. They're taking all the condiments and they're turning them 180 degrees. That, too, created quite a stir when people went in to order 
And later on the same day, they came out with a press announcement that says, hey, it was all an April Fool's joke. You know, we enjoy the idea of pulling little pranks and April Fool's, if you will. But you know, on a very serious side, there is a description that when God gives it, it perhaps could be one of the most sad descriptions that God could ever give of an individual. We're about to study a text tonight where the Lord says to an individual that has provoked this discussion, the Lord says to that individual, I want to give you a parable. And He gives that individual and those listening this parable. And in that parable, He declares to an individual, You fool. What a terrible thought. At the end of this lesson, we'll extend an invitation. I want to urge you to be honest with yourself tonight. And if there's anything in your life that God would say, you fool, tonight would be the time to get that right. Because it's no joke when God calls us a fool. But to really appreciate this paragraph, a few years ago I preached out of this paragraph... And I said to myself then, next time I preach this text, I want to go back and spend quite a bit of time to the verses leading to it. Because I believe if we see the setting of this passage, the passage itself will have a much greater impact upon our lives. And so let's begin as we look in Luke the 12th chapter with verse 1 and we'll work our way through a few verses leading to that discussion in verse 13. In Luke the 12th chapter we see in verse 1, in the meantime when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one on another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, because of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now the innumerable comes from that word myriad. And myriad means 10,000, but yet it's plural here. So most scholars agree that there was probably more than 20,000 people gathered at this time around Jesus. That's hard for us to imagine, and and we really can't imagine Him being able to address all 20,000 of those at one time. We don't really understand the setting here. Maybe He was speaking to as many as could hear, and, and then some would rotate out as others would press near to Him. We don't know exactly the setting, but we know exactly what Jesus was trying to say to those disciples. He was saying, I've got to give you fair warning. The Pharisees work against me. The Pharisees work against my followers. As a matter of fact, we see somewhat what he's talking about as he speaks of the Pharisees as we go down and read verse 4 and 5. He says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. You see, when he was speaking about the Pharisees here, and then we think about what would come and what would take place in Jesus' life and in the life of the church, there's no wonder that he gave warning. Do you remember who had a great deal of responsibility for hanging Jesus on the cross? It was the Pharisees. No wonder, he says, do not fear them that can kill the body. And then you remember once the church began in Acts the second chapter. Who was the one that brought about great persecution? It was the Pharisees. Remember even Saul called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees as he was the one that was leading the havoc of persecuting the first century church. 
And so no wonder that Jesus warns them of this because He knows that they're going to bring grief into His life personally. He knows that the followers of His are going to experience pain and some of them would even experience death at the hands of the Pharisees. But there's something quite striking here. He tells them back there in verse 4, Do not fear Him who can kill the body. Wait a minute, Jesus. You, You must have said that wrong. You must have meant to say... Do not fear those that can just hurt you. You'll get better in time. Do not fear those that that chase you. I'll be able to to offer you a way so you escape and there'll be no no, uh, physical bodily harm. Jesus, surely you didn't mean to say, do not fear those that kill the body. He literally here is implying the Pharisees, but it could be anyone that destroys the body. And he's saying, don't be afraid of them. Jesus, I live for this earth. My focus is on this earth. Well, I'm more concerned about the way I look and what I wear. I spend most of my money concentrating on earthly things. I spend most of my time concentrating on how to build up things on this earth. Jesus, what do you mean don't worry about if my life on this earth is over? You see the point? We're back to that that we've talked about from time to time. Do you see yourself as a body that has a soul, or do you see yourself as a soul that has a body? The way you answer that determines whether or not you'll be faithful on this earth, and the way you answer that will determine where you spend eternity. You see, Jesus here is addressing the fact, sure, your body may be destroyed, but they can't hurt you. Do I really believe that tonight? Do I really believe that this body's not me? And if I have to give up this body for the cause of Christ, that's perfectly fine because this body's not me. Notice these two words in the middle of verse 4 when he says, who kill the body and after. And after. After that, have no more that they can do. Jesus is saying the Pharisees may come in and they may beat you and they may even stone you with stones. But once you take your last breath, you've taken all the power away from them. They can't do anything else to you. They can't affect your soul. You're the one that decides what you do with your soul. They may do a lot to you physically. They may literally destroy that body. But they can't harm your soul. What a beautiful thought. Things may not go the way I plan for them to go on this earth. But I decide the destination of my soul. No one else can touch that. No one else can change that. And so Jesus now is moving in to what most of us would say is a heavy topic. He's urging them to see themselves as souls, as spiritual beings, and to realize that risking and giving all of this physical life for the cause of our spiritual life is worth it. In other words, if we were to put on a timeline our life, and it would be just a little dot, and then we would say, well, how long is the soul going to last? And we would say, well, it begins back there, and it goes for an infinite measure of time in that direction. 
And now the Lord is saying, whatever you have to give up for this brief moment of time in order for your soul to be right, look, it's worth it. They can hurt your body, but they can't hurt your soul. What a beautiful and a powerful thought. And it's after laying this groundwork that he gives the example in verse 6. He says, look at the sparrow. Think how cheap, how inexpensive it is for you to go to the marketplace and purchase a sparrow. He says, God doesn't forget even one sparrow. How many birds have hatched out around your yard last year? You don't know, do you? Oh, you may have noticed a nest in a bush or a tree or maybe in the corner of your porch. But you probably don't know how many birds, do you? You see, you don't value the birds the way God does. God could tell you just like that exactly how many birds have been in your yard. And now he's making that point to say this. If God values a sparrow in that way, think how much more... He values you. And then he says, to make the point even again, He not only knows you, He knows the number of hair in your head. Probably comes as no surprise to you that I I share a bathroom with Tracy. Many times I've come to the foyer here on Sunday morning and one of you be talking to me. And as you talk to me, you, you pull a long black hair off my shoulder. That's the mornings I borrow her brush. She leaves a lot of hair in the brush. She leaves a lot of hair in the... Well, never mind. We won't go there. Her hair's thick. I'll just say that much. Her hair's thick. Very thick. And I wish I had more hair. But anyway, but I want you to think about this. You don't know how many hairs you've left in the brush today. You don't have any idea. God does. God knows how many hairs you had in your head when you woke up this morning. And He knows how many you have in your head when you go to bed tonight. Why would God know that? Friend, God knows that because He knows us. He loves us. Even the things that we would say are insignificant. It's significant to Him because He loves us so much. And so Jesus is here pleading with individuals to be willing to to risk everything physically for your spiritual condition because there's a God that loves you so much. There's a God that knows you so well. And then in the very next verse, Jesus is saying, I want to be able to take your name and I want to be able to confess it before the angels of God in heaven. And if you can imagine this powerful conversation, this powerful teaching taking place where Jesus is pleading for this kind of dedication from a God that loves you so much. And all of a sudden, there's an interruption. Someone burst in the middle of this conversation to say, Mom and Daddy have died and and I want you, Jesus, to get my brother to divide his inheritance with me. And you can almost imagine Jesus doing a double take. Do what? I'm talking about eternity here? And you want to settle money matters? What's wrong with you, fella? Now, the idea of to interrupt is a pretty simple concept to understand. 
But I want you to notice, if we do look it up in a dictionary, notice what the second definition is in the dictionary of the word interrupt. The second is to hinder or to stop the action or discourse of someone by breaking in on it. I want you to read with me now, if you would, verse 13 and 14. In verse 13, Jesus, he's, he's just talked with these individuals in this beautiful, passionate plea for faithfulness. And to realize that the physical is not nearly as important as the spiritual. And then he says in 13, Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus says, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And then he gives instruction. And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Let's go back a slide, and I want you to think about, in verse 13, this interruption. This man comes in to interrupt the Lord at a time that Jesus is making such a powerful point. And I want you to think about your own life. What is it that interrupts your life spiritually? What is it that if you say, you know... This is the thing that I notice that when I seem to be growing spiritually, but yet this person comes around, or this event takes place, or this time of the year, it seems like that those are the things that just kind of turn my spiritual life upside down. What is it that interrupts us? We really need to identify that because most of us struggle with something that hinders us from being everything that we can be. Look with me, if you will, to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Keep in mind that it's man that put in the chapter breaks. And so we have that great chapter of faith in Hebrews, the 11th chapter. We have all these individuals that because of their faithfulness, were able to do great things for the glory of God. All of those Old Testament examples were not given for just a history lesson. They were given to motivate us. And so we use that as the fuel that would drive us to obey the very next Two verses coming out of the 11th chapter. And notice now as we read the 12th chapter, verse 1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice this vision here. Looking unto Jesus. He's the author, the beginner, and He is the finisher, the end of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so here we have the Christian life laid out as a race. And here we are at the beginning of the race. We found Jesus Christ and we want to run. But He says we need to run this race with endurance. And we have to put our eyes on the end. I want you to imagine with me, if we had two people here, pretty equal speeds, they could run uh, the same distance, about the same speed, and, and we told one... Hey, uh, take these 14 cans of spaghetti sauce and we want you to hold them and make sure that you cross the finish line with all of them. Then you tell this other fellow, you just run. Well, we don't have to guess which one's going to cross the line the quickest. Can you imagine trying to jumble 14 cans of something as you cross the line? That's when you go in the grocery store and you say you don't need a cart, but as you go along, you keep getting more. You've been there. It doesn't work, does it? You drop a few things and then you're off. I've got to find a card. I've, I've got to get some help. I can't handle all this. What is it that the Hebrew writer says to lay down? Definitely sin. Sin separates us from God. Sin stops. 
that Christian race. But notice it's not just sin. Before he mentioned sin, he said, lay down every weight that so easily ensnares us. There are a lot of things in our life that in and of themselves, they are not sinful, but yet we allow them to interrupt our spiritual life. And those are the things, those are the people, those are the events, those are the situations that we need to lay down. Now, there's many ways we need to approach this, and you're going to have to meditate on this one on your own time to apply it in your own life, because there's many angles we need to address this. But let me just give you one or two just to think about. In other words, if you had to fill in this blank, I spend too much time blank, and it hinders or interrupts my spiritual life. Do you study as you should? Why? What is it we spend too much time doing? It's our prayer life devoted to the Lord as it should be. If not, what do we spend too much time doing? Are we faithful in serving others? Are we faithful in being generous to others? Are we faithful in using our abilities that God has given us? And, and maybe we say no. Well, what is it? What is it? Is it so many extracurricular activities among our children? Or is it so many hobbies that we've brought into our life? Is it the idea that we have to be constantly entertained? Or is it sports between us playing the sports and watching the sports and keeping up with the sports? Now to my knowledge, everything I've just mentioned, none of those are sin in and of themselves. But yet there are many people that because of a few or a combination of those things, they're not the Christian that they ought to be. They're trying to run that Christian life, but they find themselves fumbling around a whole lot. Because they have overbooked and scheduled and involved their life in things that's hindering them from being everything that they could be if the priorities were right and if the balance was found. What would cause an individual to hear such a passionate plea by Jesus Christ and then interrupt that plea to say, Jesus, will you get my brother to divide the inheritance with me? Who knows what the man was thinking? He was probably thinking this. I've heard this man speak and he's smart. And if anybody could talk my brother into it, it'd be him. Or maybe he's thinking, I've heard him speak and he's persuasive. If anyone could persuade my brother to give me part of his inheritance, it would be him. But you see the point, right? Here he is concentrating on the temporary things when Jesus has just addressed the fact of what really matters the most. Imagine with me, if you will, how ridiculous it would be if there was an individual that could cure cancer. And all individuals had to do was come up to this individual and tell them about their cancer and he would be able to tell them exactly what they needed to do and they could go home rid of the cancer. And someone only had a few weeks to live. They're so weak they can't even walk. They're rolled up in a wheelchair before this man. And this man says, ask a question. And this individual in the wheelchair says, do you wash cars? 
Do what now? Do you wash cars? I must be misunderstanding you. I, I thought you had cancer. Oh, I do. And it's made me so sick. I haven't been able to wash my car for several months now. And I was just wondering if you'd be willing to go out and wash cars. I hear that you help people. Do you not understand that I have the power to heal you and you'd be completely cured? Oh, I'm really more concerned right now about my car. It hasn't been washed in months. That makes no sense, does it? Now imagine this. The Savior of the world was speaking. The words coming out of His mouth were the words of eternal life. The only individual that had the power to forgive sins was teaching a powerful lesson. And an individual interrupts Him to say, Can you give me some more money for my brother? No wonder Jesus turned to him and said, Buddy, I'm not an arbitrator and I'm not a judge. You're going to have to find somebody else. But I will go ahead and address your real problem. Your real problem is covetousness because you got the Savior standing right in front of you and all you're worried about is a few dollars. Now, side note that we won't take time to develop, but isn't it interesting how many times inheritances have caused people to lose their Christianity? A powerful lesson that Jesus did not overlook. It was so pathetic he wouldn't even address it, except to say, we won't talk about your inheritance, but we'll talk about the real problem. It's your heart that's full of covetousness. Now, as we look to this story about covetousness, you'll notice that he said in 15, take heed. In other words, that has to do with seeing things clearly. We say to someone, let me explain this. And at the end of us explaining it, we say, do you see? That's where the root of take heed comes from. Literally, it means to stare. In other words, applied, it means to understand. He says, take heed in verse 15. And then he says, beware. That too comes from looking, except beware comes from guarding. It's where soldiers say, I'm going to look for an enemy. I'm going to beware. I'm going to guard. And so here he says, you need to understand clearly the dangers of covetousness. And so he says, beware, take heed. And he speaks of covetousness, which is that sinful desire to want something to the point that we would deal in a fraudulent manner, to the point if someone else achieves what we've wanted, we would work against them in envy and jealousy. And he speaks of covetousness, and then he says something revealing in verse 15, as he says, life does not consist in the abundance of things. And the word consists deals with what is life made up of? What does life mean? And he's saying life does not mean things. Life does not consist of things. Remember Forbes was the one that said the one who dies with the most toys wins. Guess what? Forbes is dead now and he knows better than you and I. That's not true. Life does not consist. Life is not made up of Things and what people possesses. And so then we say, well, what is it that life is made up of? Let's read this parable and then we close. Verse 16, 17 down through 21. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentiful, and he thought within himself. Notice number one. Covetousness causes us to focus on self. Not upon God. Notice he thought within himself saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? Here's an honest man. 
Here's a man that if you were neighbors with him, you say he works hard. He gets up before sunrise and he works after sundown. He is a very successful farmer. But now notice, we read in verse 18, so he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater and I will store all my crops and my goods. Second, covetousness makes plans without God. Ten times he uses the pronoun I and he uses the word my. God's not involved in this. God, what do you want me to do with this? Well, God would have him to be generous. God would have him to give back to him. God would have him to to use this to serve orphans, to help widows, to help those in need, to help those that are in prison, etc. Now let's read on and see what else covetousness does in verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Third, covetousness spends on self. Wow, I've had such a productive year this year. I need to find a way to just relax. Now, Ecclesiastes 5, we don't have time to develop it. But when you read Ecclesiastes 5, beginning of verse 10, you read the following five verses, he makes it real clear that people that find their satisfaction, they try to find their satisfaction in silver and in abundance, it can't be found because they only want more. And then he goes on to say that the sleep of a rich man is not good. Well, here's a man that thinks he's going to kick back and relax He's not going to be able to relax. The word ease here is the very same Greek word that Jesus translates. Now think about the difference here. He has all these possessions and he says, I'm going to take my ease. He's never going to find comfort. He's never going to find rest. But now compare that to what Jesus says. Come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you ease. The Bible translates it Translators have translated it, I will give you rest. It's the same Greek word. Friends, that's where rest is found. It's laying down our burdens of sin and coming to the Lord, not seeing, what can I do for myself? Listen, something is wrong when every time I receive income, I think, what else can I do for me? Our first thought must be, first let me give back God His portion then let me see what I can do to glorify God with everything He has given me. But then finally, we read the summary there in 20. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Those that are covetous, they misplace their treasure. They work and work and work so that they can have more. But yet this earth... And this life is such a tiny dot. When we can live and send our treasures ahead, we can invest in eternity. And so here's a man that he had made no plans for eternity. And Jesus in this parable says, Okay, your time on this earth is over. You died tonight. Now where's your possessions? You don't have them anymore. And his summary is, You fool. Anytime I don't prepare to spend an eternity with my God, I have fallen under the category of a fool in God's book. Tonight, let's not not let things interrupt our life 
so that we fail to be focused. Let's not allow covetousness or whatever it might be to keep us from being what God wants. Yes, we have an enemy. He's always trying to spread us out too thin. He's trying to hinder us. He's trying to stumble us up. But we have a God who is forgiving. A God who will give us the power and the strength that we need to come to Him. And a God that promises He'll be with us every step of the way. Tonight, if you're not a child of God, don't make a foolish decision as we're about to sing. Make the best and most wise decision that you've ever made. Decision to be adopted into God's family. If you've never been baptized into Christ for remission of sins, do that tonight. Or if you have, but yet something's ensnared you, has slowed you down on your Christian walk. Tonight you want to lay those down and you want to pick up that run again. And you want to be just what God wants you to be. If we can help you.